Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to begin with the last verse of chapter 9, which we left off with last week, and move ahead to chapter 10. While you're turning, I'll share with you that I only have about 30 passages that I would like to turn to this morning, but I promise to limit myself. I will practice restraint, I think. Um, I will practice restraint. Um, but this is something that I think is very important for us, the message this morning. Uh, it's something that I, I am passionate about, and it's also something that I have found myself sort of surrounded by in study uh, recently. Um, I don't know if that ever happens to you as you're studying the Bible, but sometimes uh, without my planning or organizing it that way, it just so happens that I, I find myself continuing to come upon the same topic in my study in roundabout ways, both through things that I'm teaching and things that, that I'm absorbing from others. It happened again uh, today in Sunday school. We were in 1 John. I'll read to you from 1 John chapter 5. This is verse 18. Let me read this. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. And that fit really well unexpectedly with the sermon this morning. And then as I was sitting here, sometimes I'll be uh, trying to prepare myself to come up and, and open God's word, and I'll be thinking about, is there, is there, any, is there anything that I've missed? Is there a, a reference? And this was... Uh, um, right after the choir special, and I said, I, you know, I've been debating, I really want to read from the book of Job. And then Paul read from the book of Job. I didn't know he was going to read from the book of Job. So I've been surrounded by this, and what I mean by this is the topic of sin and fighting against sin. Um, one of the things that, that I've kind of made foundational to my own messaging to myself is that being a Christian is certainly more than trying not to sin. There's no doubt about that. But it is not less than trying not to sin. In other words, a Christian person is by nature someone who is concerned with whether or not they are sinning against God. Um, with that said, we'll read verse 27 from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and then pause. This is the Apostle Paul writing. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And again, I will read to you from 1 John chapter 5. That was the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle John. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. To me, there is a great similarity between John's language of the one who is born of God keeps himself and Paul's language that he disciplines himself. What we find, I believe here, is the testimony of the apostles of the Lord that a Christian person is not merely trying not to sin, but they are trying not to sin by establishing disciplines and boundaries in their life with the mindset of protecting themselves, in Paul's language, from disqualification 
in John's language, so that the wicked one does not touch him. And I think it's worth just pausing for a minute and asking, how seriously do we take the threat of sin in our lives? If you just pause for a minute and think about your own life and answer the question, I think, internally, are, are you really structuring areas of your life so that you are protected from your own desire, your own nature to sin? It's one thing to know what sin is. It's one thing to know this is sin and this isn't. But if we hope to avoid falling into sin, we need to not only acknowledge what it is, but consider how we ourselves might find ourselves falling prey to it. Uh, when I think of the language of John, we know that whoever is born of God doesn't sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Um, I think of the boxing phrase. You know what they, what they say about a boxer who gets in the ring and he gets, he gets hit pretty good a few times? They say he, he went in there and he got touched up. That's what they say. In other words, he got beat around a little bit. Uh, there's a, a very famous boxer by my knowledge anyway, the most wealthy boxer in the world. Not a commendable person by my reasoning, but Floyd Mayweather is a fantastic boxer. And Floyd Mayweather, uh, I believe, is still undefeated in professional boxing. More than 50 fights. You fight more than 50 professional boxing fights and go undefeated on some of the grandest stages, some of the biggest paydays, that's pretty impressive. But Floyd Mayweather is not known for delivering punishing blows to his opponents. He's known because his opponents simply can't touch him. They can't land a blow. And in all the fights that he goes into, there's always the what if, I mean, more than 50 fights, what if someone eventually lands one of these shots because he's going in the rings with, with the best boxers in the world. I mean, he's the champion. He fights against contenders. These are guys that know how to box. And he comes out of these fights and he hasn't been touched up at all. He's just developed a mastery of avoiding the enemy's contact. And that's what I think of, that's what I thought of when I read from 1 John chapter 5 this morning where it says, and the wicked one does not touch him. Why? Because he keeps himself. And the reason I thought of boxing is because that's the analogy Paul is using in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll remind you, here he is, verse 26 of chapter 9. Therefore I run like this, not with uncertainty, and thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. He's not shadow boxing against invisible opponents in the corner. Anybody can beat those guys up. You ever, when you were younger, watch like a Rocky movie and just imagine yourself in, you know, anybody can do that. He doesn't fight pretend boxing matches. I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he is talking about how he has laid aside his personal liberties, 
his personal freedoms, things that he could rightfully indulge in in his life for the sake of winning others to Jesus Christ. This is, you know, verse 22. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So the context of chapter 9 is, Christians might have all sorts of conduct and behavior, entertainment, food, indulgences, that they could in Christian freedom, participate in, but Paul says, Paul says, I don't partake in all these things. Not because it would be sin for me to do it, but because I want to have victory. I want people to be saved. I want to be productive. I want to run the race to win. I want to fight the fight to win. That's what he says. And then we shift in verse 27 to a flip side of why a Christian would lay down their liberties and freedoms. One reason might be to sacrifice in order to be successful in ministry. But another reason why a Christian might set boundaries and disciplines in their life is so that they themselves don't become disqualified from the ministry work that they're doing by way of sin. And this is the launching point for chapter 10. Paul is very concerned that we do not take Christian freedom and pretend as if there are no dangers, there are no traps, there are no sins that we could fall into. In a nutshell, he is concerned about overconfidence. Can I do this behavior? Can I listen to this? Can I watch this? Can I go here? Can I be this? Can I be that? It's not merely a question of, if I do this, is it sin? It's a question of, if I do this, will it help me or could it hurt me? Paul says, for me, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So he disciplines his body with intentionality, with thought, with intention. I am not going to do this out of discipline. I'm not going to be the lazy fighter who got in the ring and didn't think about his diet, and now he's getting his brains beat in by the wicked one. Satan preys upon those who have not instilled discipline, who do not keep themselves, who are thoughtlessly running around. The only litmus test for their behavior is, is it sin or is it not? It's not? Okay, let's give it a shot. He preys on these people who do not take sin seriously, sin seriously, who do not think they need boundaries and protections, who do not think they're vulnerable, who are not worried about the consequences because they're not worried about the behavior. And sin happens, and it destroys, and it disqualifies, it hurts. We had vacation Bible school this last week. I don't work in vacation Bible school. I worked around vacation Bible school. I was ministering, but not here. I came several evenings, and every, every single time for years that I have come to Vacation Bible School, I'm coming to say hello to parents and to introduce myself to people and to try to minister to people who are picking up their kids and make sure they're welcome and they know that we want them to be there. We care about their kids. I, I think that's my job. That's my role. 
and I see the people who are doing things that I am not doing at Vacation Bible School, running around with kids, singing and dancing with kids, wrestling with them to teach them the Bible, even though, I mean, I don't know how well you know five and six-year-olds, but they're not just eager to sit down and hear something from the Bible. And there are people, teachers, who know that they're not eager to sit down, and yet for this brief moment, they're going to try to administer the Word of God in some way to some child. And I see the ladies out under the tent. They had it easy doing snack and or uh, doing uh, uh, crafts or whatever. Was it snack under the tent? They had it easy this year. Normally it's like 100 degrees in July. It was pretty, pretty mild. And I looked under the tent and I, I uh, talked to Susie one night. Susie, I mean, I'm not going to embarrass her by asking how old she is. Um, not that I think she looks really old, but Susie was my Sunday school teacher when I first came to this church. She was serving snacks and stuff then. And here she is, 25 years later, I don't know, out there in VBS, and I thought of Darlene, who did the same thing all the way to the very end. We lost her earlier this year. She went home to be with the Lord, but she would have been there with all of her ailments and the walker and everything. And I see people serving the Lord, and I see people trying. VBS is just one example of that. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's encouraging. Because it's not sin not to be there. It's, it's, it's service to the Lord. But I want to make sure as we're doing that, that we understand we can be easily disqualified from all sorts of valuable ministries if sin overtakes us in our lives. And sin is a threat for anyone who is not keeping themselves, who is not disciplining themselves, who is not on guard. I'll read just the first part from the book of Job. It says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And if you know the story of Job, you know that Satan sees that as an opportunity to assault him. He will sin if you let me attack him this way. He will sin if you'll withhold your protection in this way. How concerned with Job was Job about sin? This is what it says. His sons would go and feast in their houses, each on an appointed day. They'd send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send for them and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. That's without him knowing if they had even done anything sinful. Can you imagine being one of Job's kids? Dad, we didn't sin. We, we didn't do anything wrong. But look at what it says. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. This was a man who we read in verse 1 was blameless and upright, who feared God and shunned evil. This was a man concerned about sin. This was a man who it would say he had made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look upon a woman and lust in his heart. This was a man who was concerned about sin. And this is a man who when put to the test in verse 13 of chapter 1 when his when his riches are taken away, when his wealth is taken away, when his own children are taken away. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And here's the summary. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And Satan tried to touch him up. He hit him with like a combo of, a, of circumstances that not many men would survive. Not sinlessly. Job was ready. Job had discipline. Job kept himself. He was on guard. And in all of his suffering, he escapes chapter 1. The grand calamity introduction of all this. And it says Job did not sin. Job did not charge God with wrong. That is someone who, like Paul, disciplines himself, brings himself, brings his life into subjection so that he not be disqualified. Now, Paul disciplines his body so that he doesn't sin. And in chapter 10, we're going to read a grand illustration. So read with me verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now, if you want to just do an exercise here, just underline the word all every time you see it in the next few verses, down through verse 5. Just, you know, just make a tiny little, I mean, all is not a big word. You can make a tiny little mark in your Bible. Right? Just under, underline the word all. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware all our fathers were under the cloud. He's talking about the children of Israel in the Exodus, and when they left Egypt, every Israelite that exited traveled under the cloud of God's Shekinah glory, God's glory. It's an amazing thing that I have never seen. It's the same glory that I believe surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration because it's described the same way. When Israel left, they were not just following Moses through the wilderness. When they left, when the Hebrew people left Egypt and went out in the Exodus, you can read this for yourself. They were following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In other words, they had what you and I do not have. They had a visual presentation of their Savior. They had a visual presentation of Yahweh to lead them on. They all fell under the cloud of God's glory. I have never been under the cloud of God's glory. I have never seen anything like it. I would be terrified by it. I know that for a fact because Peter and the disciples were terrified by it and fell down and thought they were going to die when they saw it. I have never seen this. I have never experienced this. I have never done it. But all of Israel did. Every one of them. All passed through the sea. I have never passed through the sea. Not even on a boat. But they didn't go through the sea on a boat. They saw the power of God put a barrier and stop the sea so that they walked across on dry land in a moment of peril. Every one of them. Not just the really good ones. Not just the really intelligent ones. Not just the really desperate ones. All of them did it. Verse 2. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud 
and in the sea. Baptized not literally by being dunked in water, but through that experience, following the Shekinah glory of God across the Red Sea, watching Pharaoh's armies be swallowed and experiencing that redemption. The Old Testament law says, and they believed and followed God as well as his servant Moses. In other words, they were all on board because of what they'd seen. They were all committed. They all made a profession of faith to God. They were going to follow Moses. They were going to the promised land. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. The actual food was manna spiritually provided. They didn't go farm it. They didn't, they didn't go sow it in the ground. They didn't go shoot it out of the sky. They didn't go catch it running around in the desert. They ate and were provided physical food through supernatural means. Every one of them. Verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, if you don't know the story, at one time they're out of water and they're complaining. Happened twice. But there's a rock in the desert that's split open and water comes out of it and they all drink. I mean, it fills trenches. Not just them, livestock, everybody drinks out of it. Now, what does it mean that it followed it through? Paul is saying that rock that provided literal water was the spiritual work of God provided by the same Christ, the same Messiah that was escorting them through the wilderness in the form of a cloud and a pillar of fire. It is, if you will, Jesus pre-incarnate. You see the same thing when they get to the promised land. Joshua goes across the Jordan and who does he see? The commander of the army of the Lord. Take off your feet. It's a human. It's a, it's a human being. And it says take off your feet for you're standing on holy ground. And Joshua goes to his face. That's not what angels say. Angels say, no, don't bow down to me. Get back up. Jesus is with the children of Israel. The Messiah. He is eternal. Jesus doesn't come into existence by the Virgin Mary. He was with even the people of Israel before they knew him by the name of Jesus. He is the Savior. He is the commander of the Lord's army. And they experienced, think about this, physical nourishment through supernatural spiritual provision. Now, clearly these were people who understood who God was, they had made a profession of faith in him. They had seen his power on display in their lives in a very short period of time. Power that is beyond what I would say, dare to say, I'll certainly say it for myself, any of us will experience in our entire lifetime. Now, not spiritually. I mean, I've seen what the Lord has done in my life. I've seen what he's done in the life of his people. But the physical display of God's power that they witnessed, and it wasn't just some of them. It was all of them. If any people should have been confident about their position before God and their ability to inherit the promise and their faithfulness to finish to the end, it would have been them. Nevertheless, verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. <laughs> we went all, 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 but most, God was not well pleased. 
I like, you know, I don't often read the John MacArthur study notes when I'm going through these things, but I read this one and it stuck out to me. I like his comment. He says, when verse 5, most of them God was not well pleased, he says, this is an understatement. It is an understatement. Out of the hundreds of thousands that went about, how many made it into the promised land of that original crowd? Two. With most of them, God was not well pleased. <laughs> For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now what's his conclusion? Verse 6, Now these things became our examples. In other words, God didn't scatter the bodies of the children of Israel to make them an example, but they become our examples. We ought to learn something from this. That's what he's saying. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and did not become idolaters as were some of them as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell. This is all talking about the same instance, this part. We know that no man has seen God and lived but there are men who have had a visual encounter with God, not looked full upon His face and lived. That doesn't happen. One of the most amazing things in the book of Exodus is when they get out and they get to the mountain of God, God has His thunders and His lightnings and everybody's afraid, and then God invites them, a select number of them up on the mountain, and, and Moses goes and Joshua goes, and 70 elders of the people went. It wasn't just Moses and Joshua. 70 elders of the people went. And they go, and it says they ate a meal with God. And the description of God that we get is, and the place where he stood was like sapphire on this mountain. And they eat a meal. And it says specifically in this verse, when they eat the meal, and they did not die. <laughs> Which gives you an idea of the seriousness involved here. Why? Because God, previous to that, had just made a covenant with them that He would be their God and they would be His people. And as of yet, they hadn't broken that covenant. Why hadn't they broken the covenant? Because they hadn't been given any time to do so. That's the, that's the simple answer. God made the covenant, invited them up on a mountain to have a meal, to keep the covenant. And Moses went, and the elders went, and they went up, and they saw God! Never seen anything like that! Whatever they saw was not just a picture of a man. Men don't stand where the ground beneath their feet looks like gems of sapphire. They had a meal with God. Then they leave this lofty experience and they go down the mountain because God calls Moses up the mountain to receive his covenant, his law, the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up there and he's there for 40 days Joshua goes up, not all the way with Moses, but a good percentage of the way with him. So Joshua and Moses are on the mountain. The other elders, Aaron, they all go down and they're with the people now. And somewhere in the midst of this, it's been so long that they've decided Moses must be dead. 
He's been up there a long time. It's easy to judge them for that, but let's be honest, 40 days is a long time for somebody to go disappear up on a mountain when there's thunderings and lightnings and all kinds of stuff going on. He must be dead. And they commission Aaron to take their gold and to make for them gods like the gods that they knew in Egypt, to craft them. And it says once the gods are crafted, they start singing and shouting, and pretty soon the whole thing is debauchery of sexual immorality. That's the euphemism of the people sat down to eat and drink, and after they were done feasting to this god, they rose up to play. And that's why verse 8 says, nor let us commit sexual immorality. And God, having spoken to Moses, says, you have to get down from this mountain fast. Because the people have wandered into idolatry, and I'm about to destroy them. And on the way down the mountain, Joshua, who did not hear that from God, Moses meets him halfway down. Joshua says, what's all the noise? Is there a battle in the camp? Is there a war going on in the camp below us? And Moses says, it's not a war. They're acting like a bunch of animals down there. And God judges them. To be 40 days removed from eating a meal in the presence of the God who has rescued you from Egypt by way of plagues, by way of parted seas, by ways of miraculous clouds of glory and pillars of fire. And 40 days later, to be not only dealing with some idolatrous tendencies, but to be in full-blown idolatry to be in full-blown sexual immorality? Let's just be real honest before we point fingers at the Israelites. That is what is in the heart of a man. So Paul says they became examples. Verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Later on in the Exodus, they rise up and they say, you've led us into nowhere, we're not going anywhere, you haven't brought us to the promised land, and God sends fiery serpents among them. Verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. A little bit later, Korah and some of his kin rise up and say, who made Moses our leader? He's a bad leader. He could have done this. And they're whining, they're murmuring, they're gossiping, and they're slandering. And God destroys more of them. And ultimately, in judgment, not a single one of them make it because he takes them all the way to the edge of the Jordan. And all they have to do, despite all the rebellion, despite all the sin, despite all the evil, there's still hundreds of thousands of them that make it to the edge of the promised land. And all they have to do is walk across and go in. That's it. And they say, well, we're not sure, so we'll send some spies to take a look at things first. And they send spies, and they come back, and they say, we should not go in. We cannot beat these guys, not even with God's help. We're all going to get destroyed and wiped out. We're better turning around and going back to Egypt. All the spies said that, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. 
as judgment, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation of them die. There's an entire new generation of them born and raised to adulthood. And then that generation follows Joshua and Caleb across the Jordan into the promised land. So yes, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Verse 11, all these things, all these things I'm talking about, happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Paul believes you need admonishing. I'm not saying you need admonishing. Paul believes these things have been written so that you can be admonished. You can be warned. Upon whom, this is us, the ends of the ages have come. What does that mean? It means we are in the final age of this world. We have been for 2,000 years. What does that mean, the final age of this world? It means the next thing that's going to happen eschatologically is the Lord Jesus is going to return and judge the world. There is nothing left in the way. He has dealt with sin at the cross. He has dealt with Satan. The next time he returns, it will be to judge the earth. We're in a final portion. Do you realize how vitally important what we do is? If we are at the end of the ages, do you realize how significant this is? This is not some no big deal thing. You have lived at such a time as this. You could have lived 4,000 years ago. People run around shooting tribes with bows and arrows. That's not, that's not when God gave you life. You could have lived 6,000 years ago when the whole world except for Noah and a small group of people were condemned to die. That's not when God gave you life. He gave you life at this time for his purpose. And you should take these warnings as an admonition that if you are going to run this race well, if you're going to fight this fight and have a chance at victory, heed the admonition because these, are, these things are for us upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, verse 12, and this is the landing point of all this, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's a proverb that you've probably heard before. Pride cometh before a fall. Some translations, pride cometh before destruction. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's Romans chapter 12, verse 3, stated another way. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Pride. Overconfidence. Just take a moment here and make a mental list. Please, not an audible list, but a mental list. How have you disciplined your life so that you will not sin against your God? 
What are the disciplines? How do you keep yourself so that Satan can't touch you up? What are your disciplines? What restrictions do you place upon yourself that no other person has a right to place upon you? It's Christian freedom, but you place these on yourself because I'm going to keep myself. I'm going to discipline my body. I'm going to make my body be in subjection to the purpose that I'm living for. Make the list. If you don't do that, what are we actually saying? I'm invincible. I won't fail. I won't fall. How'd that work out for Moses? He didn't get to go into the promised land. How'd that work out for David? How's that work out for people? Christian discipline is not just something that the really good Christian people do. It's something that the really honest Christian people do. I don't want you to think for a second that because I, I stand up here on Sunday mornings and I open the Bible and I speech, I speak, I, I speak, sometimes not very well. I don't want you to think for a second that my approach to Christianity is that I've got, I'm there. I won't fall. I'm not, I'm not going to get touched up. As sincerely as I can, that is not the case. I can't tell you how many times I feel like I'm in over my head. Sometimes with things inside the church, sometimes things outside the church. And what I say to myself, this, this is just this last week, is when I think about what, what, hap what, what if this goes wrong, I, I, and I'll say this, it could be that this is all going to blow up in my face because God is going to keep me humble and teach me humility. And if that happens, that's okay. That's all right. We know that the things written in this text, lust and adultery, are sin. How do you get there? We know what sin is, okay. What discipline should you have against that? What disciplines do you have for what you watch? For what you listen to? For what you look at? Teenager, young man, young woman, in a relationship, don't want to commit any sins with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, with your fiance. Okay. What disciplines you got in place? How are you going to keep yourself? You're going to find yourself often alone and in compromising situations and just trust, well, you know, I know what sin is, so I won't do it. Okay doesn't sound like you think you're very vulnerable to me. That doesn't sound like someone who thinks I could mess this up. The truth is, I could mess anything up. Paul could mess anything up. This is the Apostle Paul who's concerned about this. I'm not on the Apostle Paul's level. I don't even know what that level is. I'm not going to get there, okay? 
But it's him. And he says, I discipline myself. I bring my body into subjection. Why? So that I won't be disqualified. If he's worried about sin disqualifying, I think I should be worried about this too. Not worried in the sense of, oh, I can't ever do anything. I can't ever go anywhere. I can't ever. I, not fearfully worried, but concerned enough to discipline myself. Our part is not to simply say, I know what sin is, and I know what sin isn't, so I'm just going to trust the Spirit of God that when I get in one of these situations, I won't do the bad thing and I'll do the right thing. That's just nonsense. What does the Spirit of God do? I'm glad you asked. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will never subject his people to temptation to sin that they cannot escape. He will provide a way. That's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God provides power. You're the one tasked with discipline and keeping yourself and maintaining this. God will provide the way of escape. You've got to escape. And it doesn't seem like a good way of escape to me is simply walking around pretending there are no traps. Or if there are, I'll never fall in one. It's nonsense. I have sat with too many people whose lives have been destroyed by sin or are in the process of being destroyed by sin. It drives me insane when I talk to Christian people and when they talk about their life as if there's really nothing to worry about. Doesn't really matter what I watch on TV. Doesn't really matter what I read, as long as it's not sin. Doesn't really matter the counsel I keep. You know, as long as it's not evil. Doesn't matter what I listen to. Doesn't matter where I go, what I do. As long as it's not wrong. The Bible doesn't say I have to do this or that I can't do this. Yes, that is Christian freedom. I have never shown up on anyone's front porch and knocked on the door and said, I'm here to talk about the sin of the music that you listen to. I've never taken a brother with me to be my witness in church discipline and knocked on the front door and said, we're here to get you to confess the sin of the music that you listen to. We've never come before the church and said, we're here to call the church to call a brother to repentance because of the music that he listens to. Do you know why? Because it's not sin. If it is, I'm not allowed to exercise that authority. My authority stops here. Now, if I see you in adultery, I'll be on your front porch. But I don't do that with the music you listen to. Now, what does that mean? I can listen to anything I want. Well, you can as far as I'm concerned. But what does the Lord say? Don't be surprised when your profession of faith does not keep you from getting touched up by Satan when your relationships fall apart, when your relationship with your kids suffer, when you're dealing with unintended consequences of your behavior, when you feel distant and separated from God, when you're not sure how you should handle things. Don't be surprised 
When you deal with the consequences of sin, if you have gone about your Christian life as if, well, I'm a Christian, so as long as the Bible doesn't say it's evil, I can do whatever I want to do. That is not what the Bible says. Paul, I discipline my body. John, he who is born of God keeps himself, and the evil one doesn't touch him. Why am I hollering and screaming about this? Because I can't help being passionate about the casualness that we begin to approach sinful things with simply because the world is very casual about it. I know that it's no big deal for there to be nudity on what you're watching in the rest of the world. I know it's not. I'm not accountable to the rest of the world. I'm accountable to God. Guess what? Nudity was not uncommon in Job's day either. If you think that we are somehow more brazen about sexual immorality than they were in ancient days, you are wrong. It doesn't take much historical reading to realize it. But Job had made a covenant with his eyes at what he would and would not look upon so that he would not sin against God. There is no new sin under the sun. If God has commissioned you to follow him, to serve him, to know him, if he has sanctified you by the washing of your body, the washing of your life by the blood of Jesus Christ, if he has died on a cross to deal with the consequences of your sin eternally and invited you into an inheritance of eternal life and promised that to you, if God has given you this commission to fight this fight, to run this race, don't get in the ring every day with what God has commissioned you, with what God has redeemed your life to do, in some flabby, unprepared, undisciplined, unstructured way and just hope that you don't get your face beat in. That's really dumb. And just like in a boxing ring, it's going to be really painful. Hear me very clearly. Christianity is certainly more than trying not to sin, but it is not less. Don't sin. Don't sin against your husband. Don't sin against your wife. Don't sin against your kids. Don't sin against your boss. Don't sin against your brothers and sisters in Christ or your neighbor. Don't sin against your pastor or teachers. Don't gossip. Don't slander. Don't even let your heart go there. Don't sin. And if you're going to be successful in that commission, discipline yourself. You be the household where when you sit down at the dinner table and someone starts talking about somebody else behind their back, you say, ah, hold on, guys. We don't talk about people behind their back here. Happy to talk about your day, but we're not going to do that. God's going to deal with that. We're, we don't talk about people behind our back here. Ah, turn that off. We're not going to watch that. What are you listening to? No, 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 no. We don't listen to that. I'm talking to parents. 
Don't also be the kind of parent who's like, no, 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 we don't watch that. But I, I, I can. It's okay for me. Don't sin. Protect yourself. Why? So that you're not disqualified. It's going to be real hard for you to make a difference for the kingdom of God if your relationships in your life is being destroyed by your own sin. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you help each of us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That we would all confess our vulnerability to sin and to temptation. That we would put structures and disciplines into our own life to protect us. And that when we find ourselves under attack, we will escape via the way that you have provided. I am so grateful for your people here and for the ministries that we perform. To have any part of it is a blessing and an honor. I, I'm humbled by the way your people love you and work to serve you. I'm humbled by baptisms and by professions of faith and new church members. Father, we don't deserve any of this we don't deserve any graciousness. I'm encouraged by seeing parents with their children. I'm encouraged with people with their Bibles open, voices raised to praise. Thank you for giving us any part in the worship and the participation of your kingdom. Thank you for the eternal promise. Absolutely. Thank you for just being able to participate in your kingdom in some way here on this earth. Father, we need your protection. Help us develop convictions that will protect us from sin so we don't make a mess of your blessings on this earth. Help us to be faithful to those disciplines, to fight the good fight, to fight it well, to not fall prey to our own lusts. Keep us and then use us for your kingdom. Let us be rewarded for it. Let us enjoy that reward with you eternally. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who died for us. In his name we pray, amen.